So, as we read the Nicene Creed in our, in our responsive reading, and as we've studied it over the past couple of months, uh, we've looked at the groupings and how it's broken up by, by essentially talking about the person and, of God and his work and, and, the, and the makeup of the Godhead. The first big section of the Nicene Creed was about God the Father, and then the second big section, the biggest section was about God the Son, Jesus Christ, and then they had the third section about God the Holy Spirit, and then last week we looked at that proposition that so easily kind of gets less, left off of our essential truths of the Christian faith, which is about the church. But all the way through the creed, there's been this constant refrain with each section, we believe in. This is how the creed has started. Four times we've gone through this, and it started like this, we believe in. And when we started this series, we kind of unpacked that phrase, and we talked about how that phrase is, is really better translated, we are believing into. But there's an active component to this belief, to this faith. That this word isn't just something that we understand with our mind, but this word is connotating the fact that we are leaning into something with all of our hope and all of our being. We are believing into God the Father. We are believing into his son, Jesus Christ. We are believing into the Holy Spirit. And we get to this last proposition of the Nicene Creed, and they shift it up on us a little bit. We, we, if we were taking this in rote, we'd expect to go, we, are, we believe in. But it doesn't say that. It says we look for. We look for. And the verb that's used there is just like the verb used with believe in. It's an active verb. It's better understood that we as God's people are looking for. We're anticipating. We're expecting. We're hoping for something. There's an anticipation and an expectation and a hope that's supposed to be palpable and tangible and real in the life of a follower of Christ. And so as we get ready to kind of unpack this hope that is supposed to be with us and real in us and animating us every single day, I want you just to take a quick second and think about the object of your hope. Whatever sense of hope and expectation you have in your life right now, what is the object of that hope? What is the thing you're hoping for or anticipating or expecting? What what is it? As we look at the creed, I want you to see, does it have anything to do with what the scriptures and what the creeds say the hope and the expectation and the anticipation that's to well up in the life of a believer and to animate our daily existence. I want you to see if yours is really consistent with it. The creed says this, we are looking for, hoping for, anticipating the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. Anticipation and hope and expectation is tethered to resurrection from the dead in eternity. And, and if we're really honest and I reminded the first service of this as well. We we say this all the time, and it's very true. Oftentimes, the gathering of God's people is one of the most difficult places in the world, to be honest. And so many times we come into this place wanting to be someone that we know in our hearts we're not because we're worried what other people think about us. And there are certain things we're supposed to think and supposed to believe and certain ways we're supposed to act. And it's very hard to be honest in here. But if we're really honest, if you're really honest with yourself, when you think about your hope as a follower of Christ and what you expect and what you anticipate... Is it really connected to a hope in the resurrection from the dead and the life to come? When we think about eternity, hope and expectation, anticipation right here, right now, in this very present moment of life, a real palpable anticipation, those aren't the things that we generally connect to eternity. Those aren't the, the words and the emotions in our life that are generally connected to this idea. And that's sad to a degree. And as we see this morning, hopefully you'll understand. I mean, how different is our sense of our life from that of David? In Psalm 39, David said this, 
He said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then he says this, Selah, just stop and just think. Just reflect on that. It's November. It's getting cold outside, most days at least. And there are days so far when you step outside and you take a breath and you exhale. And just for a brief moment, you can see that breath come out. You can see that breath move out of your mouth and in front of you and then it just dissipates into the atmosphere. As soon as you see it, it's gone. This is what David is saying is true about our life in light of eternity. It's like a breath. It's like a hand breath. It's, it's nothing in light of eternity. The breaths we have on this life, the days we have on this life, the time that we have on this life in light of eternity is like that breath that you breathe and you see it for a moment and then it's gone. And what David is saying is the man and the the woman who are wise, they'll take the time that they have on this earth to think about what's to come on the other side of this life that is so quick and so brief. Philip of Macedon, you may know him as the father of Alexander the Great. History records that he actually had a servant who was appointed to stand next to him all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in his presence, and he had one job. It was to look at him throughout the day, dead in the eye, and say, Philip, you are going to die. Philip, you are going to die. And again, if we're really honest, you and I are less David and less like Philip and, and more like Louis XIV. Louis XIV, in contrast to David and in contrast to Philip of Macedon, he too made decrees in his kingdom. But his decree was this, never in my presence, never anywhere in my presence or in writing that would ever cross my desk is the word death to be mentioned. No one is to mention the word death in my presence. The reality of it is no matter what we do, no matter how many edicts we make, no matter how many times we we try to escape it, we can't escape the reality of death. You and I can never escape it. The the current death rate for for humanity, do you know what it is? It's 100%. The current death rate for mankind is 100%. And every single last one of you in this room, I want you to deal with this, Every single last one of you in this room will die. You will die unless Jesus Christ returns before you take your last breath. You will die. And if we were just to do a little bit of math, just to get a bigger perspective on this whole thing, we could take the current understanding globally that says that every second, three people die somewhere around this earth. Three people die every second. And if we do math, that says that 180 people will die every minute. 11,000, give or take a few, will die every hour. And if what the Bible says is true about eternity, then every single day, 250,000 people around the world will take their last breath. And they will die. And one day they will rise again. And they will stand before the risen King Jesus and be received as his friend or put away for eternity in hell as his enemy. 250,000 every single day. 
and what we have to deal with when we talk about living with an anticipation and an expectation and a hope and the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. We've got to deal with the fact that before we can anticipate the resurrection from the dead, we have to go through death itself. The reality of it is the, the majority of us, and I would dare say almost all of us, live our life today unprepared for death. We don't think about death. We don't like death. It makes us uncomfortable. We avoid it at all costs. We avoid hearing about it. We don't like being around people who are suffering. You and I live our life every single day unprepared to die. We live under the fear of death. The Bible says that one of the very things that Jesus Christ came to do was to deliver his people from the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Now he's talking about people, human beings, the children. He's talking about God's people. So humanity, share in flesh and blood. We're human. He himself likewise partook of the same thing. So he's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus himself, as we talked about in the weeks before in the creed, became man. So that through death, he, talking about Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15 in chapter 2 says this, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You and I, apart from a living and sincere and abiding faith in the person and work of Jesus, live under the constant tyranny of the fear of death. And the sad thing is, so many of us misunderstand the reality and the hope of, of the resurrection, that even as followers of Christ, we live under a sense of, tyranny, of the tyranny of, of death. And this isn't supposed to be And so this morning, I want to read a a couple of important scriptures that will help us understand this whole thing and and give us some context for talking about it as we kind of look at where death comes from and what the hope and expectation, anticipation a Christian is to have in this life now and where that that comes from. And I want to try to connect a couple scriptures for you. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 5. We'll start there. And like the other sermons in this series, we're going to flip around a little bit. And as we flip around, we'll will hopefully begin to paint a picture that can begin to stir your heart. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to say this, and what I want us to see is a picture of where this enemy, this fear, this death comes from, and, and how it's overcome in the person and work of Christ, and what the hope of the Christian really is, so that we can talk about what that does for our life here. Romans 5, we'll start in verse 6. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, you and I, born in sin and fallenness and weakness. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty of what we call the gospel. This is the message that we live and that we die on, and that we unpack in here week in and week out. You and I were born Every single one of us took our first breath on this earth in weakness and in sin. Our hearts were not inclined to the beauty of God and the sufficiency of God. And God looked at us in our ungodliness and rebellion and he made a way for his love and his justice to meet and to be satisfied. And he did that by sending his son to take on flesh like you and I. And Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and and then he laid his life down on the cross and died the death that we were supposed to die because of our sin. And on that cross, he exhausted the wrath of God in our place for those who put their hope and put their faith in Jesus. This is the gospel, the good news that Paul is making much of right here. And he says that God loves us and he shows it that while we were still sinners, his son Jesus died for us. And 
Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood. So we've been made right before God because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that because of Jesus, God exhausted his wrath on his son in our place. And so for those who place their faith in Jesus, they'll never face the exhaustive injustice, just wrath of God for their sin. Jesus did it in our place. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, Paul says. And this caught me. I didn't catch this while I was studying, but I was telling the first service. It caught me while, we were, while I was preaching. All the times we talk about the gospel and the riches of the gospel, the forgiveness of God, the justification of God, here Paul's going to talk about the reconciliation of God, that we're, we're adopted into God's family. As beautiful as that is, and as right as we should treasure that, Paul just said more than that. He just said there's more than that. I mean, there's so many times that we short change the good news and the riches of the gospel. And Paul just said, as great as forgiveness is, and as great as justification is, and as great as reconciliation is, there's there's more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Now here's here's this thing, death. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So death came through one man. Death is the result of sin. This is what Paul is saying. This is where this enemy, this fear comes from. It's the result of sin. Look down at verse 18. Therefore, Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. So one man, Adam, in his sin, death came to all men. Now Paul's saying through one man, Jesus, righteousness and justification can come to all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Here we go. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I want to connect that with something else for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Through one man, death entered humanity. And through one man, Jesus Christ, justification, redemption, reconciliation, salvation are made available to all men. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 22. I want to connect these two things for you. Verse 21. He's going to repeat what he said to the Romans. For as by a man came death, talking about Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, this is the hope we're talking about now this morning, so also in Christ, in one man, all shall be made alive. So here's the hope that he's talking about. Just as sin came through one man and death through sin to all men, so through one man, Jesus Christ, comes salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and the resurrection of the dead. So that Paul could later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death now is swallowed up in victory. Through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, death has now been swallowed up in victory. And he can look at it and say, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? You see, what Paul is trying to communicate to the church is that for a follower of Christ, death is not meant to be something that scares us. Death is not to scare those who are followers of Christ. Death may loom over mankind like a shadow. It may be a dark shadow that carries itself over all of humanity because of sin. And for many, it may not even feel like a dark shadow, but it might feel like hands that are pressing down on your throat 
slowly closing off the air and the life that you breathe, you might feel the fear of death such to the degree that it paralyzes you, but it's not to be that way for the follower of Christ. Death has no grip on the Christian. And therefore, a follower of Christ doesn't live with the fear of death, but rather with the anticipation, the expectation, the longing and the hope for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. Now that's a proposition and that's a truth, but sometimes you need something concrete to hold on to. Okay, I, I'm living for the anticipation of the life to come, but I, I need some help with that. What is it I'm anticipating? What is it I'm looking forward to? Paul anticipates this struggle. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's going to give us something, a hook to hold on to, a hook that produces this anticipation, this hope, this excitement, this longing and looking for this day in the life of a Christian. First, chapter 15, verse 35. Look at what he says. Now someone's going to ask, we're talking about the hope of the resurrection of the dead, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And what that question is getting after is one of the biggest problems that we have in the church with understanding the hope of eternity. I mean, one of the, the biggest problems that we have in, in, in the Christian church for the lack of the joy and the longing and the anticipation of eternity, of the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, is that we have such misplaced views of eternity, such pale pictures of eternity. We've settled for this idea of eternity. It's a, a disembodied existence or, or at best maybe a, a cherub-like floating on a cloud. Just watch the way that, that popular culture uh, portrays eternity. They got it from the church. And we have such pale visions and understandings of eternity that there's no way that it can produce any kind of longing and anticipation and hope in, his, in God's people because we don't understand it rightly. And one of the things that we tend to miss is what Paul's getting after right here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we tend to miss that you and I as men and women, as human, are created in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. And we tend to think about eternity as this kind of disembodied time, this spiritual, ethereal eternity that we can't seem to get our our minds around. And partly it's because we tend to forget that when God created us in his image, he created us body, soul, and spirit. Your your body, this body that you have, was created by God and meant to reflect God in greater or lesser degrees. You were made by God in his image to reflect him. So the real you, the essential you, the total you is not your soul and your spirit. We tend to get this mindset implicitly, and and it comes from a variety of places, and we don't have time to kind of unpack all the influences, but we tend to have this idea that the real me, the real us, the real person is our soul and our spirit. The body is really secondary or inconsequential, and that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you were created body, soul, and spirit by God in his image, but the problem is we tend to dismiss the body as not really essential to who we are, but our whole selves are made to reflect God. And so when we deal with the fallenness of this world and the futility of this world and the struggle of this world that was brought by sin, we tend to get frustrated by our own fallenness. We tend to get frustrated by the brokenness that exists in our own body. And though we were made in God's image and meant to reflect God, we were, we were made in some sense to be like mirrors that reflected in different ways and in different degrees the, the glory of God, we get frustrated by the shattering of that image or the brokenness of that image image in our own bodies and this frustration 
about who we are, it leads us down a number of paths towards a bad theology or a bad understanding as to who we are, body, soul, and spirit. We miss that God created us in his image and what God created was good. It's not to be rejected. It's to be received with thanksgiving. In fact, the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we won't go there right now, but he was talking about some false teachers who were bringing this doctrine into the church and confusing the believers, telling them that they were to abstain from certain things, certain foods, certain practices that God had given and that God, that God had said were good, but they were telling the church that you need to abstain from those things because they're not spiritual. They're not spiritual enough. They're fleshly. They're human. You need to get away from those things and, and press into the spiritual things. And Paul looked at Timothy and he said, everything God made was good and is to be received with thanksgiving. That includes your body. We tend to separate our soul and our spirit from our body. And so when we talk about redemption and we talk about salvation and we talk about restoration, we tend to bifurcate it between our soul and our spirit and our, and our body. But I want you to see that when we talk about redemption and we talk about salvation, we talk about the treasures and the riches of the gospel, we talk about all those things that God has done for us and in us and will do through us through the person and work of his son. We're talking about the essential you, the whole you, body, soul, and spirit. Your salvation, your redemption is not a move away from the physical to the spiritual. It's the whole you. Your soul, your spirit, rescued, redeemed, transformed, your body too. And when we fail to include this and we miss this, we get a truncated view of eternity. And we get this idea that it's our spirit and our soul, it's out there kind of in the ether for eternity, the essential us, but that doesn't produce any kind of anticipation and hope and expectation because we've truncated and cut off the, the fullness of the gospel. And when that happens, how could we ever have any kind of real hope for eternity? What is it we're to anticipate and, and long for? This is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when, when he said, I, I know you're going to ask, how, how are they raised from the dead? What kind of body do they have? He goes on, verse 36. I want you to hear what he says, and I want you just to try to listen. I want you just to listen to what he says, and I want, I'm just going to trust God's spirit to work with his word and produce just like a, a joy in you as you kind of get what he says. He, look at verse 36. He's talking to all of us now. You foolish person. All of us who, who cut off the connection between the fullness of who we are from body, soul, and spirit. And what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And of what you sow is not, the, is not the body that is to be. It's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So the body that is going to die, the body that you live in, the body that you are about to sow, it, it's not the body that's going to be. I want you to get excited about this. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. And there is one glory of the sun and one glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star to star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Your body now is perishable. Think about that milk that you leave out on the counter. It's perishable. At some point, it's not going to work. It's going to go bad. Your body is perishable. Every single day, it's getting closer to its expiration date. Doesn't matter how many surgeries you have, how many pills you take, how many programs you get on, 
Your body, every single day, is perishing. It's perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. You, you understand that, right? You get weakness. You get pain. You get hurt, don't you? What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What's sown is a natural body. What's raised is a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, listen to what he says. If there is a natural body, do you have a natural body? Do you have one? If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. He's talking about Jesus. But it is not the spiritual life that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's talking about us. It's perishable. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who have heaven. Verse 49, just as we have been born the image of, man, of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. What Paul is saying is that the hope of the resurrection of the dead is the hope that one day when Jesus returns, we will rise to be with him. And it's not our essential person, our soul and spirit that rises to be with him for some disembodied eternity. Our bodies, your body, that which was sown imperishable, will be raised imperishable. That which was weak will be raised in power. You will live forever in eternity in the presence of God. We'll see in a second in a new heavens and a new earth with a new body. With a new body. This is to be the hope that is to animate the life of a Christian in the midst of the things that he faces in a fallen world. This is to be the hope that is to give life and anticipation and expectation to us in the midst of such pain and hurt, in the midst of bodies that are breaking down, in the midst of bodies that are suffering, in the midst of injustice. Those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ have a daily anticipation and expectation and hope that animates their life that one day they will stand before him And not just their spirit and not just their soul, but their body. And just as he was raised from the grave, bodily, physically, so we will too be. And our bodies won't be natural and perishable. They will be spiritual and imperishable. But very real. Very, very real. There is a a great benediction, which is kind of how you close a, a service or a letter. There's a great benediction in one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. It's a 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll just read it to you. It would be good for every single one of us to take time throughout our life and day just to reflect on what he's about to say to this church, to just deal with it. It says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. I mean, transform you completely. Bring you fully to the completion of what he's working in you. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he who calls you, he's faithful and he will surely do it. 
And the longing that each and every single one of us has for restoration and for redemption and for justice and, and for the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our, our conscience and that, that hope for redemption. It, it's not just that our spirits and our minds and our souls will be transformed, but that hope is that we know that one day and we long for the day when our very bodies will be rescued and redeemed. And this is the fullness of what God promises in the gospel. And Paul said that he who called you He who called you, he who sent his own son to die for you, he who has redeemed you, he's faithful. He's faithful. And he'll do the very things that he's promised. So as a follower of Christ, you may may limp through the majority of your life on this earth. You may suffer the effects of a fallen world. You You may suffer the struggle of a body that breaks down. You may suffer the struggle of a mind that just doesn't work the way that God intended. You may suffer and you may limp and you may be hurt, but as a follower of Christ, God has given us his great and precious promises so that each and every single one of us can live each and every single day that we face on this earth with hope and anticipation. Day by day, our bodies grow weary. Day by day, our bodies deteriorate. We spend so much time and so much money trying to push back the inevitable. But the hope of the Christian is not that we can somehow escape death. The hope of the follower of Christ is not that we can somehow escape death. The hope of the follower of Christ is that in Jesus we have overcome it. It's a very different thing. The hope of the follower of Christ is not to somehow figure out how to escape the reality of death, but to treasure the reality that because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has promised, we have actually overcome death. And we're to have confidence in this. And so Paul wants to give the church confidence in the very thing he's trying to encourage them in. And that's how he started this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Just listen to the ground of this hope and this anticipation. He says in verse 12 in chapter 15, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and we're even to be found misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom whom if he did not raise, if that's true, then the dead will not be raised as well. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. So all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who have died ahead of us in Christ, have perished. If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And if we're really honest, that's about where our hope in Christ ends. For the majority of us, we relegate our hope in Christ and the riches of the gospel to this life right now. But Paul says, if that's it, the most to be pitied. Verse 20, and this is the grounds. But in fact, not if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, this is what he already had said. For by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, bodily from the dead. Don't disembody Jesus Christ from the resurrection. Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead and his resurrection gives to the Christian the promise and the hope of a personal, real, bodily resurrection of your own. This is part of the hope that is to animate the Christian life every single day in the face of the suffering and the pain and the injustice of the world that we actually live in. Followers of Christ then are not supposed to be daunted by the idea and the reality of death. In fact, a quick read over church history, you'll find just the opposite happening. When when Christians would get hold of the fullness of the gospel promise, not just for the forgiveness of sins and, and, and the reconciliation to God, but the promised redemption not only of their soul but of their body and the life to come with God forever, it would animate some of the most mesmerizing and amazing lives that you'll ever read of. But the people who died for Christ throughout church history and throughout the world right now, right now, all over this world, people are suffering horrendous injustice that is leading to their death because they confess faith in Christ. And they're not doing it with their fists clenched and their knuckles getting white. They're not doing it with gritted teeth trying to figure out how to do it. They're doing it with unspeakable joy because they're being animated by the hope of the resurrection from the dead that is grounded in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they face the life they live with joy and anticipation and expectation for what's to come. Not a disembodied eternity floating around in the ether somewhere. The Apostle Peter actually wrote to the church and he said, according to God's promise, according to the promises of God, part of the riches of God's good news of the gospel, Peter said, according to God's promise, we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All things, not just your physical body, but this very earth is going to be recreated. And eternity is not some disembodied floating around the universe. It is a real you and a real body with real feelings and real touch on a real earth experiencing the fullness of God's creation in all of its perfection for all time. This is the hope that's to animate the way that we live right now. And we're meant to think on this end more than we do. We're meant to think on this. We're, we're to be longing for this and anticipating this and expecting this and setting our minds on this and allowing us to cultivate a new perspective and a new hope in our life. And the problem is we, we, we get short of thinking on eternity and we get caught up on the timeline. I mean, the story of the church today is that we're caught up on this timeline of how the end's gonna come and how we're gonna know the end is here instead of thinking on eternity itself. And allowing eternity to to cultivate our our soul and give us a a hope and an anticipation and an expectation that it was meant to give us. The scriptures and the creed says that as followers of Christ, we are to live day in and day out looking for, hoping for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. So we need to think rightly about eternity. We need to think more often about eternity. Have you ever thought about why you don't get excited and anticipate and expect and and look for eternity and look for the life to come? I mean, seriously, we have such pale ideas about eternity, such pale understandings of eternity. 
How could it produce anything but a diminished hope and a diminished expectation? Eternity is a long time. Forever is a long time. And God has promised us a forever of living and touching and feeling. So I was reading this week and studying this week. I came across a passage and uh, somehow in my, in my notes, I forgot to write down the book it was from and who wrote it. So I, I read this and it just stirred my heart. I just want you to, to listen to it. I just hope that God uses it just to stir your heart as we begin to think about eternity and the hope that we're to have. Just listen to this. The blessedness of the life to come is like savoring your favorite food or drinking your favorite drink or laughing with your favorite friends. It's like seeing your wife on your wedding day sparkling in her overpriced dress and grinning from ear to ear. It's like holding a newborn baby or watching your grandkids play. It's, it's like standing on a dune overlooking Lake Michigan and on one side and seeing a sea of green treetops on the other. And it's like the peaceful majesty of corn blowing in the breeze in July or watching an afternoon storm roll over the front range. It's like being awed by a visit to the Great Wall of China or the skyline of New York City or the York Minster Cathedral in northern England. It's like that rare moment when you know in your bones that God is with you and you know you really love him and you want to sing and you want to shout. It's like all of these moments except the moments never stop and their intensity never wanes. The life to come is like all of this power and beauty and delight and this truth and sweetness rolled into one experience and multiplied by 10, then by 100, and then by 10 million. Eternal life in God's presence will be such a weight of glory that we will feel as if we never knew happiness before and all of our troubles will be in a moment forgotten and seen as so puny and so trivial and to be utterly inconsequential compared to all of this joy. On earth, every Joy and every pleasure that we chase and that we grab is ultimately fleeting. The greatest food that you can savor, as soon as you can savor it, the taste is gone from your mouth. Those moments with your kids that you delight in as you play and you laugh, as soon as you turn your heads, they're on your nerves. Every joy, every pleasure on this earth is interrupted by frustration or pain or disappointment. It's all fleeting, but not eternity. In eternity, the glory and the delight and the love and the joy, they're not just there, but they're always growing, always swelling, always increasing in intensity as we learn more and more and more to savor who God is and be in his presence. In fact, one of my favorite little phrases I learned recently Francis Chan, a pastor out in California, he said eternity is best understood as your best life. Not now, but later. It's true. I mean, it's funny because you, there's, a, there's a, a popular book that talks about Christians finding their best life now, but that's not the picture in the Bible. It's your best life is later. Your best life is to come. There is a fullness of joy and a satisfaction and pleasure that is only right now a joy deferred. And a pleasure deferred and a hope deferred. But the joy that we'll experience and the fullness that we'll experience and the satisfaction that we'll experience isn't simply because in eternity there'll be a new heavens and a new earth as glorious as that is. And it isn't just because we'll have a resurrected body. 
A spiritual body. We won't have the one that's perishing, the one that's sown in weakness. We'll have one in power and glory. But that in and of itself is not why eternity is to produce such excitement and anticipation in our hearts because even if we had a resurrected body and even if we had a new heavens and a new earth and even if we got to enjoy them both for all of eternity, but God wasn't there, it would ultimately prove empty. You can have all of those things and go from pleasure to pleasure and joy to joy for all of eternity. But if God is not there, if Jesus is not there, then ultimately they'll all grow stale. They'll all be ultimately dissatisfying because we were made to have the fullness of our joy and satisfaction and delight to be satisfied by God himself. And this is in fact what Jesus said as he defined eternal life and the life to come. In John chapter 17, in his great high priestly prayer, the prayer he prayed for his church before he went to be with his father, Jesus said this. He lifted up his heavens. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, sorry. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then he said in verse three, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God. In Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with a resurrected body, but without Jesus, would ultimately, even in itself, be dissatisfying and meaningless. But eternal life, the presence of God the Father, God the Son, animated by God the Holy Spirit, knowing Him coming to know him more and more and more day in and day out. This is the hope. This is the joy. This is the expectation and the anticipation that is meant to change the way we live right now. And so I think it's fair to say that in treasuring this fullness, this this depth of the gospel, this promise of redemption and restoration, not just of our soul, not just of our spirit, but of our whole person of our body. I think it's fair to say that Christians, followers of Christ, because we are to know how to actually die, should actually be the best at living. Because we know how to die, we're to be the best at living. There's to be an urgency that comes with an understanding of eternity that's meant to drive us and compel us. This theology, this truth, this idea that we're looking for, hoping for, longing for the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of our bodies and the life to come. It's not just something that's supposed to be filed away in our minds. It's to produce something in our lives now. It's to change the way we understand who we are and how we live. There's to be fruit that's produced now. Hope and joy and anticipation, that's one thing. The more we treasure and long for and look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, the more the Spirit of God produces patience in our lives in the midst of the pain and the suffering that we endure in this life now. Let me close with this. Romans chapter 8. Let me grab this. I was thinking about this in the first service and it just kind of struck me. This theology is never meant to just be information, but it's meant to produce something. Romans chapter 8. 
verse 18. Listen to this. The more we long for this, it's the Spirit of God produces a patience in us that's so desperately needed. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. We're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. There's going to be pain. Not just in your body, but in your life and in your friends. But it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, you and I are part of that, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, Paul said, but we ourselves. We ourselves with creation have been groaning under the pains and the weight of the fullness of God's redemption. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. The redemption, Paul says, of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. A right understanding of the fullness of God's redemption of his people, body, soul, and spirit, produces in us a patience. A patience that doesn't simply allow us to endure the life we live on this earth, but to face it with the perspective that in Christ, as his followers, as his sons, God's sons and daughters, we've overcome it. We've overcome it. And our longing is not simply for relief. As much as we want relief and pray for relief and and long for relief, our ultimate hope is not in relief, but it's in the resurrection of the dead day that our bodies are raised. What was imperishable, what was perishable is now imperishable. And what was weak will be raised in power. And every single last one of us who are followers of Christ, we can live day in and day out with anticipation knowing that, like Paul said, he who promised such things, he is good and he is faithful. And a day will come And it won't just come, but that day will last forever when when we will, in fact, receive all that we've ever needed and all that we've ever longed for. This knowledge, this truth, this promise produces a patience in us now. A joy deferred. A hope deferred. We as followers of Christ, we eagerly long for, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come with God the Father for all of eternity. And the creed says, amen. Let it be. Let me pray for us.